that we face raising children today, how uh, some cultural shifts had made it a very isolating experience. Um, and uh, it's, it's a huge need that not just our church, but the church in general um, can begin to help meet. Uh, today, we're going to uh, talk about what we talk about when we talk about ministry. Uh, that is me- intentionally meant to be a very dizzying title, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, then the following week, uh, we'll be talking about kind of the legacy um, of we're investing in you know, future generations. And then on October 22nd, the fourth week in October, we'll be talking about generosity, and that will be the Sunday that we will be asking uh, by God's grace, uh, for those of you who feel led to uh, pledge, to give however much God leads you to give, uh, above and beyond what you would normally give, to go toward funding this position. Uh, remembering that we have uh, a fair amount um, that uh, is available to be matching funds. We're very, very grateful for that. Um, so today, we're talking about what we talk about when we talk about ministry. <laughs> I like saying that. And it's important because ministry is a, a word that's kind of like the word God. We can throw it around, but when somebody asks us, well, what does that actually mean? It starts to get a little slippery. We, we tend to just assume we know what, what it means. And the reason why I want to focus on that kind of with or through the lens of Ephesians 2, that we are saved by the grace of God through Jesus from our sins, as Paul said, uh, is because the, the concept or uh, what we mean when we say the word ministry um, has actually changed quite a bit. Uh, over the last few generations, but it's done so kind of under our nose. To get there, I'm going to have to go like way back, and, and some of this is going to be historical, some of this will be uh, philosophical-ish. Um, it's the kind of thing that my professors at seminary told me not to do, but whatever, I'm done, they can't touch me, any, and it's not like they're going to listen to this anyway. Uh, so, at the very least, I don't have to explain what I mean, or I don't have to convince you when I say that uh, ministry amongst our emerging generation right now is different. Um, the number of times that I've had people come into my office who are roughly my parents' age or maybe a little younger uh, come in and say, Pastor, what is going on? with this current young generation, is not zero. (laughs) Um, Because there are some shifts and changes that have happened pretty dramatically. Um, And if we're not aware of that, it's going to make it really hard to understand uh, and communicate with, and as we're eventually leading to, minister to these kids. Uh, As it turns out, however... The church has a long history of being very successful in doing this. And as even though things might seem a little weird and a little uncertain and scary right now, it is in our DNA to respond well to this. 
This is, and, and this is what I mean by that. Many years ago, like not quite 2,000 years ago, uh, the primary way of, um, of, of recording information, having moved from like just pure oral tradition, uh, is by writing things down on either like tablets or scrolls. And uh, that's, that's a very effective way of recording information. Uh, we have scrolls that are uh, far older than, than 2,000 years that, that have survived. Um, eventually, there was a weird group of people who decided that they did, and I'm truncating a lot, so if you're a historian, my apologies, but uh, it, it, there was a weird group of people that, that didn't like reading uh, like a scroll because they wanted to reference things and compare things, even in the same body of writing. And you can't do that with a scroll because if you want to reference something, first you got to you know, unroll this in and, and lay it all out and find your place. And it's very, very difficult to go, okay, here and here. Like it doesn't work. And so this strange group of people started taking what we will eventually call sheets of paper and writing on those and sticking them together at one end, giving us a codex, what we would call a book. This strange group of people, as it turns out, are, were called Christians. And they loved this because then they could read about Jesus on one end and about the, the prophet Isaiah on the other end and all they needed to do was stick their fingers in each side and go like that. Does that make sense? They like to reference things. As it turns out, when you change the way human beings record and retrieve and interact with information, you fundamentally change our culture. It's just a weird product of history. So that one, that's very esoteric. That was a long time ago. If you move up by, I don't know, 500 years or so, give or take, um, to the era of the Reformation, which as a good Lutheran um, may be a little more familiar, you see that same pattern. So roughly the year 1500, just you know, broad brushstrokes here. Um, Martin Luther hits the scene. He sees some uh, pretty tremendous abuses by the medieval Catholic Church, and he decides that that is not okay, and he starts writing against them. At the time, Luther did not say anything, or for the most part, did not say anything that hadn't been said before. There were people like uh, Wycliffe and Jan Hus who had gone before him and had similar complaints and ideas about the nature of God and his grace and the Bible. Uh, they were all killed. Luther was not because shortly before he uh, became active, there was an invention known as the printing press. Now remember... If you change the way you interact with information, you change culture fundamentally. Suddenly, if you wanted to reproduce a, a work, like uh, something that somebody has written, you don't need to go through the long, expensive, highly skilled labor requiring process of hand copying everything. 
And what made Martin Luther unique was that suddenly he could write something and within a couple of weeks, and there is actual evidence of this, a couple of weeks, there were 30,000 copies spread all throughout Europe. For the first time in history, you could do this, which means the medieval Catholic Church couldn't go in and just kill him like they normally would because suddenly everybody's reading what he's written and a lot of people like it. They're going to be really mad. The invention of this printing press not only enabled the Reformation, but it led to uh, the Enlightenment, the development of the scientific method, uh, the preservation and the expansion of literature. It changed everything. Whereas previously, the only place to catch writing or find writings uh, would be at universities and the church. Information was um, highly controlled by those in, in authority, in other words. Now, 500 years later, it's weird that there are 500 increments. Um, I think it's just a coincidence, but it's an odd coincidence. 500 years later, uh, we have the internet. I assume most of us have heard of that. Uh, in fact, the hard part is getting away from it now. And the internet has done the same thing. And it's been so natural and so fast that we don't often take a step back and really think hard about the way it's changing um, our, um, our, our culture, I guess. Um, the interesting thing about the internet is that you, anybody can put information on it. The terrible thing about the internet is that anybody can put any information on it. There's no vetting process. There's no peer review for the most part. And it's also changed the way uh, people who grow up with access to the internet think. Um, I'm kind of in a weird spot. I'm a millennial. So I'm, I'm, I'm in that, those, uh, I'm in, well, the millennials and Gen Z, and then that mix called Zennials, and we're not even going to go there. Um, where... Um, where my brain thinks a little bit differently because I've, always, I've, for the most part, always had access to the internet. And so for me, information is not accessed by going to, say, a library or a university or an expert. It's through Google. Like, I just, if I need to know something, I just type it in and I can find it and I just follow the first link. That sometimes doesn't always work, but... You know what I mean. Uh, you, don't, you want to know what the second most used search engine is? It's YouTube, where anybody can post videos about almost anything. There are some restrictions, thankfully. And anybody can get up and talk about any, almost anything, and they can do so under the assumption that they are an authority on any topic. And the problem, depending on um, the field, is that they are not authorities on the topic. But YouTube's old school. Now we've got TikTok, we have Instagram, Snapchat, and a million other apps and services I've never heard of and will probably never use. But the kids are. And it's changing the way authority and community function. 
it used to be that if, say, I don't know, 70 years ago, if you lived in anywheresville Midwest, if you were having problems in your marriage, who would you go to? You would go to trusted, maybe trusted friends. If you were younger, maybe not. You'd, um, some kind of older pillars within the community that have a track record. Or you'd go to your pastor. Because at that time, churches and, and its pastors generally were understood to be authoritative on moral issues. Uh, they don't do that all that much anymore. Because there's, I mean, there's practically an industry that has grown up around uh, relationship advice created by people on various media platforms, uh, including, you know, 15 seconds to fix your marriage kinds of videos. And uh, I have to say, some of it's okay, a lot of it's terrible. But the difference is that we're not really a source of moral authority anymore. And the reason why this, gets, uh, why this affects what we mean when we talk about ministry is that we used to think or we used to, to be in a position where a church as in an authoritative uh, place or role in society would be able to speak to people about how to help their lives, how to grow spiritually, and ultimately how to come to uh, be a part of the kingdom of God through Jesus. We had the authoritative voice. But practically under our noses, there's been such a revolution in the way we think about information and the way we access it and therefore what it means to be authoritative that we don't have the right to speak anymore in a lot of people's minds. Um, I, I noticed uh, when I used to run like discussion groups on like philosophy and theology, especially when I lived on the San Francisco Peninsula. And it, it was a lot of fun, and it actually took a while for committed Christians other than me to come to these groups. It was, it was great. It was a lot of fun, very challenging. And you learn very quickly that echoing the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, that statements or declarations like, God saves us from our sin through Jesus, do not work. Because I don't have the authority to pronounce that from their perspective. So th their response would be, well, I'm not sure that there's a God. But if there is a God, I don't really believe in this idea of sin. I don't think that I need to be saved from it or anything like that. And if there's a God, why would he have any problem with me? Now, fine, I mean somebody who said this, who actually did say this to me as we were discussing some issues. Uh, I mean, it's a place to start. It's not like I would expect a non-Christian to say anything else. But where do you even begin? Now, operating even deeper under this, we do not have time to go into it. Um, so, whatever. But operating under this begins with a, uh, a philosopher by the name of Nietzsche who uh, declared and 
and I think he's actually right, that a claim to truth is a claim to power. If I claim to have the truth, what I'm actually saying, according to Nietzsche, and I think for the most part he's right, is that you need to listen to me, and therefore I'm the one with the power here. And if you have grown up in kind of the emerging generation, so I'm thinking like any, roughly anybody born 1980 and uh, more recent, then you will tend to be distrusting of any claim to truth because it will feel like a claim to power. And who are you to think that you have that kind of authority? Can you see how, when we talk about ministry, things got really complicated? Because the church is just another voice in the marketplace. And they're making claims that seem to assume that they're the, they should be the ones in charge or they think they're right. And who are they to say that I'm sinful or broken or anything like that? That's a truth claim and I don't buy it. Um, this can be scary. And I've had conversations with, with colleagues who, uh, who can feel the shift in culture and, and are terrified by it because they don't know what to do. It can feel scary, but maybe it's my own personality because I generally am a pretty optimistic person. I'm not that afraid. The church has, the church has thrived in so many worse circumstances and when the church is in a situation where the culture will tend to conflict with it, the church tends to do better. When Christianity gets in bed with power, it gets very uncomfortable and weird, in other words. There's a reason why I, as a professing follower of Jesus, could sit down with a, a, um, a follower of Jesus who is female and South American uh, to a guy in Uganda to a, uh, a woman in the uh, kind of hidden underground church in China. We could sit down and with an interpreter, we could, th there's a lot that we would agree on about the most important thing in our lives, which is this man named Jesus. The way of Jesus has always transcended culture. And that is an encouraging thought as we're sitting here watching culture shift. Our culture, especially my generation and earlier, are asking questions that we are not used to answering. And that's fine. We will figure it out. We always have. By the power of God's grace and His Spirit, I'm not worried. But when we talk about ministry it often will mean we have to talk about something different. Or we will have to use different vocabulary, which means it stretches us and grows us a little bit. So thinking about um, this, this position, this director of youth, family life, and school ministries, um, one, of the, one of the most important things that they're going to do <clears throat> is that they're going to bridge the gap between our church community and our school community. We have a whole bunch of families that pay to be here on an, uh, a weekly or daily basis while school is in session who ha are not connected to the body of Christ. And if our goal is to make disciples, 
This is a good place to start. And it is very fair to assume that a lot of those people not connected to the kingdom of God will have certain incredulities, certain distrust of any claim to authority, uh, claim to authority that we may make as part of the church. So then what do we mean when we talk about ministry to people we're in a very different, have a very different worldview from our own. And as it turns out, the answer to that is shockingly easy. The answer to that is another question. What is the currency of the kingdom of God? It's relationships. Relationships are the most powerful tool uh, that we as the church have. They're some of the most powerful experiences that human beings have. That the way of Jesus has been forged generation after generation um, in, in spite of all the crazy and weird shifts that are happening now or happened back then or whatever, uh, that we have or we exist and we thrive because of the relationships with other Jesus followers that we have made. So first and foremost, uh, this position will be bathed in relationships, forging relationships, um, and, and, and hopefully creating that space so that people would know that, that we love them, that Jesus loves them, and that there is a whole new world out there within the redemption that Jesus offers. That's part of what we mean when we talk about ministry. But there's another part. Because like I said, um, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people to say, especially my generation and younger, to say, God has saved you from your sins. Because a lot, of, a lot of us reject that premise that we are sinful. Now, I'm saying we, because I'm part of this generation, not because I don't believe I'm sinful. Just, I need to make that clear. Um, but we can't start there. We can't start there because it's, 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 a, it's a power claim. Um, and you're going to have a really hard time convincing somebody that they are in fact sinful and in need of salvation when they reject that premise. Trust me, I've tried. But as it turns out, um, that's not the only way to talk about what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. There are actually several ways to talk about God saving us. And some of these get overlooked in church life, which is a real shame because they're very powerful. And, and, and some of this is actually uh, embedded in Ephesians 2 when God starts talking about we are now his workmanship. That he has saved us for good works. That he has brought us into a life of resurrection. Because while many people are going to balk at the claim you are sinful and in need of saving, as true as that may be, there are other ways to ask that question. Um, the, uh, the fancy theological word that I'm getting at here is called recapitulation. Um, that actually, that's... It sounds fancy and it's kind of a $10 word, but it makes a lot of sense. In, in Spanish, how, what is the word, uh, how do you say the word chapter? It's capitulo. You're re-chaptering. 
and very, very brilliant and faithful church fathers from a long time ago started to realize that one of the ways we can talk about what Jesus has done for us is that it is a recapitulation of our lives, a retelling of our story, and a retelling of the parts of our story that need retelling. And I don't know a single person who would not agree that there are parts of their lives, parts of our lives, that need to be retold. The parts of our lives that are filled with regret and mistakes, the parts of our lives that are traumatic, the the parts of our lives that are just weighing us down that need to be retold by a better storyteller. For a generation that has tried very hard to not walk around feeling guilty for anything, we still carry this burden. And so one of the other things that we talk about when we talk about ministry is an invitation into this story. What part, and I, would, I extend this invitation to you. What parts of your lives need to be retold? What about the chapter you're in now? How is it going? Because I'm willing to bet if you're anything like me, there are parts of this chapter that I would really like to have a better storyteller than me because I'm making a mess of it. And tilted in just the right way, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, that God has taken that story and he has retold it with Jesus. That those, those parts of your story and your life that you desperately need retold are retold now through the lens of God transforming death into new life, of mistakes and failure and what the Bible would call sin into something that's renewed, that is is of new life, that will last uh, forever. It is eternal. So what do we talk about when we talk about ministry? And especially in light of this new position and this new direction that we here at Christ Lutheran are looking at going. We talk about relationships. That is the currency of the kingdom of God, period. That's where everything happens. And a retelling of our story. Taking the parts of our story that desperately need a redemptive arc. And then rereading, retelling, rewriting that story through the redemptive arc of the, of the God-man Jesus who took on our mortality and, um, and, and, and strove against uh, our, the worst parts of what it means to be human and by giving himself up into death and God using that death in the most redemptive arc of all to, to, to defeat death and to recreate life everlasting that that's how that's how i want my story to be told too that's what we talk about when we talk about ministry amen